Painted Arrow podcast, committed to taking you beyond the pursuit. Welcome, folks, to another episode of the Painted Arrow podcast, and uh, we got a good one for you today. I'm joined by a very special guest, uh, Adam Bump. I'm going to let you introduce yourself here, Adam. Um, Will you just you know, introduce yourself, who you are, where you're from, and what you do for a living. Sure. Sure. My name is Adam Bump. I'm uh, the fur bear specialist for the Michigan Department of Natural Resources. I work in uh, our wildlife division. Um, I work um, out of Lansing when I do go to the office. Um, so that's in southern, the southern part of the state of Michigan. Um, my job is um, the statewide expert on fur bearing species. Michigan defines fur bearers in um, statute. So we have 17 species that are considered fur bearers. So that's anything from coyotes to weasels to beavers, um, any of those kind of species that were traditionally harvested for, for fur. And I spend uh, most of my time working on regulations um, designed to try to provide um, recreational harvest opportunities, but also maintain populations. I deal with uh, groups of individuals, organizations that have a passion for the same species and provide input on those regulatory changes. Um, do some, provide some expertise to our field staff on habitat for those species. Look at data and what data needs we have to try to make sure we can monitor those populations to make sure they're, um, being sustained on the landscape. So if I put you on the spot, can you list off all 17 fur bear species or no? <laughs> um, I could probably get close. Do you want me to try? I, I kind of do, honestly. I'm going to count on my fingers as we go. All right. So let's see. Um, we have Martin, Fisher, Badger, Otter, Mink, we have three species of weasels. So we have least weasel, short-tailed weasel, which is also called ermine, and long-tailed weasel. Let's see, I'm hoping that's all the weasels. We have possums, skunks, raccoons, red fox, gray fox, coyote, um, beaver, muskrat. Uh -oh. I think that's 16, isn't it? 16, so like, which, what's the one that I forgot? Wolves? No, wolves are not a, considered a fur bearer. Oh, man, I'm so close. Once you get down to the last one, it's... Did you possum. say... You said possum. Did you say raccoon? I said... I think I said raccoon. It's probably one of those little, what we call mesocarnivores, those middle-sized fur bears. I got close. No, that's really impressive, honestly. I, I didn't think you were going to get that far. <laughs> but... um so, wait, so I'm confused about wolves. I understand that wolves are protected and there's some stuff going on in our state with with wolves right now in the UP, but like that's not considered a fur bear species? No, and it's interesting because um, I'm working on a presentation that I'm going to be giving um, not too far from now talking about fur bears and one of the intro slides, I'm actually sitting at my computer now trying to go to it because I have pictures of all 17. I want to see which one I forgot. Um, I'm going to go through in that presentation and talk about that. So the term fur bearer means different things to different people. The 
the state of Michigan defines what we call as a fur bear because the law handles fur bears differently on some things than other species. So there are things like wolves. When wolves were delisted and we had the one modern wolf season that we had in 2013, um, I believe they were in that pot, but they were reclassified so they're standalone big game species. They were traditionally harvested for fur. Um, other species that people think of, sometimes bears, people ask about that, um, but they're just a standalone big game species. Um, then we have the rare and endangered species like um, lynx that occasionally pop up in Michigan, very rarely, and then we have um, the transient cougars that show up, but those are T&E, threatened endangered species, so they don't fall under that category of um, so, so two questions quick. Can you trap a wolf with a with a foothold trap in the state of Michigan? No. You cannot? Nope. There's no open season for wolves now. We had one, one modern season. So after they had recovered and were delisted from the federal endangered species list, um, we had one season in 2013. And that season actually did not include trapping at that time. It was only a hunting season. Got you. And then the other thing I was going to ask is uh, lynx. Those those are probably coming from Canada, correct? They're not coming. They're not coming from the south, obviously. Uh, you know, it's really interesting. Almost, I might not have said bobcat. Did I skip bobcat? No, you did not. So there we go. There's seventeen. I just went. Yeah, that was an easy one, bobcat. Yeah, we both yeah, missed that absolutely. one. I was going by categories in my head, and we only have the one feline. That's a fur bear, maybe. That's my excuse, but that sounds good. Um, <laughs> so, so lynx normally, like when we get a normal transient lynx, it would show up in the UP. So we had one in, um, I think, the early 2000s that showed up in the central up and then we had one on sugar island between um the east up and canada in the early 2000s and then that's about it we haven't had much more than that but then just recently we had um a link show up in southern michigan and um, and it ended up being captured and we re re released it in the upper peninsula and it's really hard to figure out where that animal came from so there was a sighting that was i believe confirmed in indiana not too long before that hmm. and so i don't i can't tell you where that one came from but the typical behavior and the typical since the up is at the extreme southern fringe of their range, you would expect, yeah, they pop out of Canada or come around through Minnesota, Wisconsin, they're in there for a little bit and they're gone. Right. Um, but it's it's really rare to have them come down. It's just not it's just not the right conditions for them. Right. Bobcats we do have, and we have them pretty much statewide. Higher densities in the northern two thirds of the state, but we're seeing them pop up on trail cameras and getting confirmed sightings in southern Michigan more than we used to. But they've always been down here in really low densities. Right, right. I do want to circle back because I, I want to circle back to like nuisance and uh, talk about some of these, like you were saying, trail cameras and how these things pop up. I do want to circle back to that, but um, okay. kind of going off of what you've, uh, you know, originally said on how you're ha helping to add regulations specifically to the Trapper's Digest. Is that correct? 
Yeah, we have a now we have a, fur, a standalone fur harvester digest. Um, it used to be integrated into just this hunting and trapping digest is what we used to call it. So there's a set of regulations that we call the wildlife conservation order that um, I would make recommendations for change to our um, appointed natural resources commission has the decision making authority. So I present them here's whatever scientific background we have on a particular issue. Here's what we've talked to our interested parties about. Here's what we're recommending to you. Then that would get changed in law. And then it gets in, and then we, we change the um, digest to reflect those regulations. Can we, can we dive a little deeper just cause like I, me specifically, maybe not now, but a few years ago when I started trapping, I, I mainly trap for coyote and I've trapped mm-hmm. raccoon, I've trapped possum, I've trapped, um, you know, more, more of the small, small animals. Um, I think coyote is probably the biggest animal I've trapped. You know, I've, I've trapped, uh, beaver and, um, what am I missing there? Rats, rats. Yep. yep. Um, you know, so I guess when I first started that, I was pretty overwhelmed by all the regulations and I, I guess where I kind of want to lead this is uh, like what specifically happens. Like you, you said, you're reaching out to stakeholders when you're trying to change laws. Is it typical that um, like, is that normal that when, when a regulation change appears, is that coming from trappers and hunters and anglers, I guess you could say, or is it, is well, it go ahead. Yeah. It's, it's interesting that you asked that because I would say, Yes, the vast majority of things that we consider are coming from the stakeholder groups. So for for most fur bear issues, we have a few um, decent sized trapping organizations. One of them um, has expanded to include predator callers into their um, group of people that they represent. And then another segment of people that take um, fur bears, which is a uh, houndsman. So you have the um, hound hunting com- community, which there's multiple organizations in the state of Michigan. So we we do meetings that include representatives from those groups. And then I ask them to generate topics. So what is it that is confusing or that you don't like, or what do you have concerns about? And then I add that to just kind of a, I I keep a running list of topics and then I pull from those. So it's pretty clear where the ideas are coming from. We get um, other people that aren't active in those organizations. If they contact me or something funnels through different channels and gets to me and they have ideas, I'll add it to the list. Um, And then we also will get, sometimes our natural resource commission will ask us to review an issue. And then sometimes we have issues internally to wildlife division and um, examples of that would be we we did some new modeling techniques on our Fisher and Martin populations. Those are trappable in the upper peninsula. They were reintroduced. So we're, we try to be extra cautious with those populations and those population trends that came out of that modeling showed some significant declines in population, especially with Fisher. So the department implemented or proposed changes and talked to the stakeholder groups about them, about trying to reduce harvest in a way that um, the stakeholders could still have some opportunity, but that we were trying to um, 
reduce harvest to enhance those populations and reduce declines. So usually uh, the division will have ideas that are either to clarify regulations that are confusing people, or they might be mostly because we have some sort of population concern. All the rest of them are more, well, we, we as the hound hunting community or we as the trapping community would like to see this opportunity be allowed or we have concerns that this population is declining and we want to see you do something about it that kind of thing so i mean you guys are sending out annual i'm sure um, surveys for hunters and anglers and trappers specifically in this case like is that is that what you're going off of when you when you're changing regulations like I just feel like you're not going to go off of what a, a group of trappers say that, hey, we've been seeing less critters in this area, right? That's not enough mm-hmm. to change a law. Like you're probably getting surveys. Yeah. So if you, if, if you're, if the stakeholders are asking for something because of their perceptions about a population's trend, let's say, well, we think that there's so many otter that you should let us kill as many as we want or there's no bobcats anymore so you need to shut down as much of the season as we we can stomach if you do that Mm -hmm. um that we're going to take a look at any of that those that biological information that we can for most species you're right it's a harvest survey so we mail out surveys to people that participated or that purchased the license um to take fur harvesters and ask them questions about their activity. How many animals did they take? How long were they out there? How many traps did they have set? And that information um, helps us monitor trends in populations. So frequently wildlife biologists will look at indices. So some kind of measure that we can get fairly easily that's related to the population, but it doesn't actually measure the population size. Trying to um, get a population estimate for fur bearers is very difficult. They're usually at fairly low densities on the landscape. They're a cryptic group of species. They like to stay hidden. They don't want people to see them. They don't want to be found. So we look at those trends. And one of the ones that I use the most is looks at um, what we would call harvest effort. So it takes kind of an average, how much time did it take to harvest a bobcat or an otter um, for the average fur harvester? So if you look at that trend over time, if everything else stays the same and you see an increase in the amount of time it takes for each otter that's harvested, that's suggesting that the population is declining. Mm-hmm. And if you see a decrease, um, then it's suggesting that the population is increasing. And if if you deer hunt but don't harvest fur bearers, and you can think of it as if you're sitting in your tree stand and you see one deer a week, it takes you a week or three weeks to harvest a deer. But if you go out every day and you see 20 deer, you can harvest a deer in one day. So it can be reflective of that. And you look at it across a broad landscape to try to account for those. Well, yeah, but that guy just has a honey hole so he can get one every year. And this guy continues to trap in a big sandy lot with there's nobody's going to be there. So you look across a big the whole landscape to try to get that picture across the state. So we will use that kind of data. We have uh, registration for some species that can give us more information that can help us 
um, refine our picture of how the population is doing. But, you know, the reality with a lot of that is um, people who engage in any of the outdoor hunting or trapping sports usually have a pretty strong opinion about their ability to assess populations. So we do struggle sometimes with having data that we're pretty confident in, but if it's not reflective of what, what individual trappers or hunters see on the ground, they tend to resist our assessment of the population and stick with their, what their view is. Right. Yeah. I, think it's, I mean, I think everybody does that. Yeah. No, I, the reason I asked you that, like, we I've talked to biologists on the podcast before, and I've I've found out that it's a common theme that getting a getting an accurate population estimate is very difficult, you know, and mm-hmm. that it's it's interesting to me how um how how as a state you know specifically the home state my home state of Michigan how we do that so yeah and it's it's always a challenge to try to um convey why why you don't even need it to people that don't have that wildlife management background. So the, the push is usually to get ever closer to a census, which is you go out and hand count and every deer, every bobcat out there, which is impossible to do. And I see, I often see that the more precise you try to get, you get a population estimate, the more people don't want to accept it. But but we use these things called indices every day in our daily lives. I mean, except for modern cars, this, this analogy doesn't work so well anymore because of the way cars function. But usually you look at your gas meter and it's got an F and an E and a couple lines through it. You know when it gets down to around a quarter of a tank or whatever that little arrow points to that says a quarter that it might be time for you to start getting gas. You don't need to know that you have 3.2 gallons left. You you use an index of, yeah, my tank's roughly a quarter full, so I'm, I'm, I need to be concerned about it. Um, and indices with populations are the same. You, you're looking at, you, you wanna know when there's big swings in the population. Are you climbing really fast where you have, you're gonna have potential nuisance problems? Or are you seeing a consistent decline over time that that wasn't planned or wasn't explainable that you need to address? Right. Knowing that it's 2,331 animals doesn't, doesn't really help with your management techniques that much. Yeah, absolutely. So you, you're saying that you have these these public meetings where people come in, stakeholders come in, and I see these because I'm I'm enrolled to you know I'm subscribed to the the state's email chain and I get all those. And I remember a while back I got in a you know one on chronic wasting disease, but at these meetings for like trappers and sounds like houndsmen, how many people typically show up at these events? Like a good amount of people. Well, for this, so for my program, it's it's fairly restrictive. So we have the primary organizations that have official representatives that we want to make sure are there. And then there's over the years, even before um, I had this job, which is 12, 13 years ago now, we had a mailing list that we sent out. So we don't, for issues specific to harvest regulations of fur bears. We don't typically have broad open um, meetings, but we have this 
core group of the stakeholders that would be affected. That doesn't mean that we don't consider the um, broader points of view when the people provide us input in other ways, or if we do planning efforts, we usually look at that broader perspective. But the fur bear work group itself is, um, it, it can range anywhere from, I'll have 20 to 30 people there to 60 or 70. It Some of it depends on um, the nature of the topics that we're looking at at any given time. And um, I think some of it's starting to get now where guys might be aging out where they're just feeling like, oh, no, it's not, right. not going to go to the meeting. Then. How, how many, how much of the closed door meeting has to do with the fact that you don't want people in there who just are completely against trapping? Um, it's a challenge for me to try to balance the nature of the conversations that we have with regulations when you have that diverse of a perspective. So I, I talk fairly regularly with people in, in the, the broader community that is not usually supportive of Harvest to get some perspectives. There's items on my list that came from some of those individuals. But in my mind, when I'm when the department said we're going to be having harvest of these species if we can do so safely and sustainably to try to um, gain consensus or, or develop regulations about this is the number of bobcats you can take in this unit or this is the types of traps you can use um, it's a challenge to try to have that full spectrum in that nature of the discussions. What I would actually like to do is um, develop a more kind of a dual prong approach where we can have everybody um, come and have bigger conversations about this is why fur bears are cool. This is what we wanna make sure that we can do. We wanna be able to see them. We wanna be able to see their tracks. We wanna make sure that your um, harvest methods are humane and that the harvesters can say, well, we want to take this many, we want to use these devices. But the conversations about the actual specifics of the harvest regulations, it's, um, it's a lot more manageable to do with the, the affected stakeholders, the ones that are going to actually be doing the harvesting. For sure. That's definitely a double-edged sword. Like I'd love to be a part of one of those meetings, just see what goes on. But like, mm -hmm. I think there's a... There, there's a level of education that needs to be addressed, right? For people who come in and they're just, they're, they're completely against trapping. They don't have much, you know, information on it. They just know that they don't like it and they don't know why. Right. I, I could see how that would cause a level of difficulty and um, just wouldn't allow you to get much done at those meetings. So I, I see so both sides for sure. I had, um, when wolves got delisted, they were taken out of the threatened and endangered program and put into my program. So I, I no longer have wolves or bears, but at the time I did have wolves, bears, and fur bears. And so I went across the state and had these conversations about the potential of having wolf season, which wolves more than any of the existing fur bears that have seasons currently generate this intense. Yeah. Yeah. But I found it very interesting to have conversations. It, it was very challenging, but then you would find, so it gave me an opportunity to present to rooms that were nobody, nobody harvested wolves because you couldn't. And you had a room that was predominantly, I don't think it's a good idea. 
And to just have these, I, I would just tell them this is what the state is deciding. And usually my approach was, I'm not going to try to convince you to feel one way or another, and you, you can feel the way you do, but I want you to understand why the agency is thinking the way it is, what information we're using to get there, and just keep an open mind about it. And also try to put yourself in the shoes of the managing agency and your challenge is to make everybody happy. That's what everyone expects. So how would you do it? What would you do? And it was interesting to watch people. I would get people coming up after the meetings that would say, well, I don't think you gave, you changed my mind, but you gave me some interesting things to think about. And so that was kind of the middle of the road. Uh, I just don't like the idea of wolves being killed, but not not the, I'm a member of an organization that is, is strongly opposed to harvest of wolves or, or anything else. Those individuals would respond differently and they have, you know, specific things that they want to see either happen or not happen. And um, that's where you get this, this interesting, I mean, if you, if you try to, if you try to have that conversation with someone that says, wolves need to die because they're doing something and try to come up with something that's going to satisfy both you you can't do it so then you have to figure out how how can you do it and how can you show people that you're listening yeah. even though they're they're not getting exactly what they they need or it, want it's super interesting to me like specifically in the last five six seven eight years with wolves we've had a lot going on in the state of michigan colorado had some stuff going on with real you know reintroducing wolves and it, there's something about wolves that people love. They just mm-hmm. it like, it pulls this and triggers this emotion in people where it's like, I, I feel like it just gets them all wrapped up in their emotions. And I think something that's super interesting is how our industry hunting, fishing, trapping fur bear, all that. It's like we self fund it, right? It's like, we're not getting funding. Like, the license sales, things of that nature is what that's what's paying for research and biologists and, and things like what you do. Right. I mean, so you get these people that they, they want to say because they live in the state and, and, you know, we, as we, as citizens, we, it's goes back and I, I couldn't tell you the date, but basically the states are in the owners of the, of the critters. Right. 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 So it, it becomes a, it becomes a hairy situation. So, I think it's really cool though that you were you were one of those fellows that that was out, you know, <laughs> spearheading these uh, initiatives for wolves. That that's super interesting to me. Yeah, it was a uh, very well. It was a uh, unexpected for me, but then it ended up being. It's kind of one of those things that it it might be really difficult going through it, but it was an interesting experience. <laughs> yeah, I bet you got I, a lot of different. Uh, you know, a lot of different people telling you different stuff. Yep. Yep. That's for sure. And, and you are right. Wolves, wolves bring out a lot of passions. It's interesting when you look at a lot of the other fur bearers, it's, it's not as intense. And a lot of the other fur bear focus is often on the method rather than an individual species where you have that much passion. So it's, uh, I don't really support trapping. So I just don't like it across the board. Not this passion about coyotes or, um, some of the other fur bears, otters, bobcats, the the general public perception often is, oh, I didn't even know we had those 
around. <laughs> right. So no, I, I bet you there's a large population of people that don't realize we have lynx coming around every couple of years, you know? Yep. Yep. Um, we got so, I, so many things I want to talk about, so I'm going to try and uh, narrow these down here for sake of time. So in terms of like demographics, you, you kind of mentioned it a little bit there where these there's older group of people are kind of getting out of the out of the game, I guess you could say. What what do you see uh, in, on a daily in terms of younger trappers? Like I'm 25 years old. I don't mm-hmm. see a whole lot of folks out there trapping my age, to be honest with you. Um, what, what, what is your opinion of, of where the demographics are right now and where they're going? So it's fur harvesting is a good one to look at for that because it, it has changed over the last couple of decades in some interesting ways. One, one interesting thing in Michigan is that most, all of our license types have been decreasing in license sales. Um, and the fur harvester license bucked that trend in the early 2000s until I think it was around 2013 or 14, somewhere in there. We peaked out and then have started to decline since then. But prior to that, we were seeing um, steady increase in the number of fruit harvester licenses sold. And it was the only license type that we were seeing um, that happen in. It's, I don't know, it seemed to have turned back around a little bit. Um, the other thing that you're starting to see is um, trappers historically were very protective of their methodologies and their techniques, and they didn't really want, you know, you better learn on your own because I don't, I don't want competition, or they just tend to be a more private um, reclusive segment of um, hunter, the hunting community. Mm-hmm. And, and I think probably about two decades ago, that really started to turn around. And now you find them extremely open. They really like to, they do youth training events. They do a lot of youth oriented events. They like to try to mentor people. They want to get everybody out there to try it. They're willing to share all the secrets that they have. And I think that has an impact on the number of people that are coming in. I don't know if you see that reflected in the numbers of people that are participating or not, but um, there, I think there's more women that are trying, but which is shown in a lot of the other types. So there may be that rebound. Um, part of the problem for me is that we are in, I'm a little bit older than you, so we're in a different segments of the, the random pots that they put people in. I'm 48, but both my generation and yours aren't aren't really joiners like people that are older than me as much or not as much so. So you you see all these organizations that they may have younger people participating in the activity of trapping but they're not actively going to meetings. They're not joining the organization. They're not doing all those types of things. So you, you'll have a bunch of older guys that are active. Then you'll get, you know, a handful of younger guys that are taking over some of the leadership, but there's just not that level. So I don't see the activity as much because those are the people that I most interact with are the active members of these organizations. So it's hard to, um, it's hard for me to gauge exactly what's happening, but I do hear about a lot of kids that do it. A lot of first time trappers, um, going out. So, um, I think 
it's starting to be some people are doing it because traditional practices and some of those old school methods of doing things is becoming kind of popular again and they're participating for to get some of that i think yeah no i would agree with that definitely you know be i'm pretty much a you know nobody nobody taught me how to trap like trapping coyotes it was it was such a learning curve and i I think it's so important that there's like a mentor in this in this specific industry Mm because I mean, you can do it. You can definitely do it, and you can have success. Like I'm, I'm proof of that. But it, it does take a level of like responsibility, especially with the. I mean, if you look at, there's a whole separate book for fur bears. Like it can be very intimidating for new people. So I, I think it is super cool. You were mentioning that there's people like doing classes and training and whatever. That's that's crucial. I think you know. I, I just don't exactly. see people getting into it like you said, middle 40, you know, mid forties, mid thirties, where they've never done it. They've never, you know, it, it takes a lot of time too. So having yeah. somebody to mentor you is a big, big thing. Yep. I agree. The, the trapping organization, the Michigan trappers and predator collars association, and then the national trappers association and fur takers of America all do, um, they, they call them conventions. So, um, Michigan Trappers does theirs in Everett in the mid part of the Lower Peninsula. And they, so it's got booths where they sell stuff, but then they'll do open training seminars where you can just look at a list or they broadcast it. So-and-so is going to talk about how to do coyote sets or beaver trapping or doing um, whatever technique. And, and you can go and just sit in and listen. And it, it's a good opportunity to go around and just run into guys that trap and then the michigan organizations have often in the past few years i think two or three times they've hosted the national trappers association um national convention i think twice in the upper peninsula and they're working on their second or third time in the last 12 years down in kalamazoo it's a huge event but it's a cool opportunity for people to just see what's going on. And even if they just sat in a couple of the demonstrations to get a feel for it, where if you don't know a trapper, you could meet one there or even just pick up some tips that might get you comfortable getting started um, just by attending the event. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Let's talk about uh, nuisance animals. Now you kind of mentioned like, for example, the lynx you, you have, I'm actually more interested in uh, cougars, to be honest with you. So if you have mm-hmm. something about cougars to talk about, please do. But like when you when you when you are getting this information, like you said earlier, we got lynx coming in the area every couple of decades or every couple of years. Is the majority of that information coming from Joe Blow, who's got 50 acres and has a trail cam out, and he just happens to catch one on trail cam? Is that is that the majority of your information there? Uh, yes. Yep. Yeah. So. Like, um, I'm trying to think. So I, I can think of from memory three, three links in the 17 or 18 years, I think, that I worked for the, for the DNR. Um, one was caught in a foothold trap that was set probably for bobcats, and it ended up being released with no issues there. And the trapper reported it and i think the dnr went and released it we had another one that was 
the Sugar Island one it was walking on a snowmobile track in someone's backyard. They took a, it was a, lo a little while ago, no trail camera, no, I think it was just regular photo. And they sent it to the department and we, there was enough there that you could tell the difference. They can be hard to tell apart Bobcat and Lynx. And then the, the weird one that was down here was, um, yeah, people reported seeing one and they ended up getting a picture of it so that we could verify what it was. Um, we get a lot of reports of weird things and weird things show up in Michigan that there, there's no way they got here on their own. Um, but to get something that we have in hand where we can verify the actual identity of the animal and the location um, can be challenging. Cougars, almost 100% of the confirmed sightings are pictures or trail cam photos that are submitted by the average person or somebody takes some pictures of tracks and we can verify what they are. We do for cougars. So I used to do cougar stuff too. And then when my bear and wolf stuff split, we put cougars with that large carnivore specialist. So we have another person that deals with those three species now. But with cougars, we field verify any evidence before we'll confirm it just because there's there's been plenty of times where things are submitted people will submit photos that you can find online that were actually taken in utah or somewhere and then they'll say they saw it here or we want to use an abundance of caution given all of the um strong feelings about cougars here that we're making sure that we're only confirming animals that we can verify were were actually here so so we'll put that extra level of effort and that that would be the same thing that we would do with something as rare as a lynx or we've had one wolverine that we've able to verify in the state of michigan and we wouldn't have ever said that yes we know that that wolverine was here um, unless we were able to verify the location of the photos in that case the wolverine the one of the biologists went and saw it in person. So we had no question about that. So it's kind of those, the more trail cameras that are out there, the more possibilities there are that we'll encounter some. I think the more trust the agency builds with people that we're gonna tell you what we find. Um, we don't have a great reputation, especially with cougars when it comes to that. The more often people will submit them. Um, so I think as we build some of that trust, we get more more submissions that way too so we do or do not have cougars around we have transients that's the way we would look at it is um we pretty much um most years now we're verifying and i think this past year has been one of the busiest um that we've had as far as confirmations now what we can't say is how many individuals is a Sometimes we can say, well, this photo was taken here and this one was taken 100 miles away the same day. So we know there was at least two. Right. We've never been able to verify any evidence of breeding. We've um, any of the animals where we've been able to ID the sex. So we did some genetic work on some scat and hair, I believe, um, and other other ways that we were able to um, sex the individuals, they've all been males. Yeah. So consistent with the, the idea that they're transient from the closest 
um, populations are in the Dakotas so that they disperse across the prairie and get here. Uh, now for people that have different views of cougars, that kind of thought is strongly contended, but I have, I've seen no evidence to support anything other than that. And that fits with how cougars behave. So it, I mean, they keep coming in, they keep showing up here. So it wouldn't surprise me if eventually there's female or some evidence of breeding, but until then it, it looks like transients. Onyx is the number one GPS hunting app on the market. If you don't have Onyx, I would highly consider trying a free trial where you can get access to all 50 states and all of the mapping features and tools. Onyx allows you to send waypoints to your buddies, see public and private boundary lines, and see where you stand in live time. It also has a new weather feature that allows you to track weather and wind so you can stay on top of your game, literally. It's a no-brainer. If you go on your computer, not your mobile device, to onxmaps.com and use the promo code PAINTEDARROW, you will receive 20% off your elite or premium subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. There's nothing I like doing more than hunting elk in the western states. One of the main challenges of hunting big game species in western states is actually getting a tag. Furthermore, it's actually understanding each state's drawing systems, which can seem like a chore to figure out for beginners. Go Hunt is a company that has figured out how to simplify this obstacle for basic folk like you and me. Go Hunt offers a subscription service called the Insider, which gives you access to the most accurate draw odds, species breakdowns, and strategy articles out there. Before I started using Go Hunt, I would spend hours filing through kill harvest reports and data sheets looking for a good unit to hunt in. And using the Insider has streamlined this process, making it easier and more efficient than ever before. This has allowed me to find a place to go hunt. Hence the name. Visit GoHunt.com to find out more and to start a free trial with the Insider Subscription Service. Shupex Sporting Goods in Jackson, Michigan has been in the business of selling outdoor equipment for over 30 years. They have over 1,000 new and used guns and over 500 new bows for you to choose from. This family-owned and operated company goes above and beyond to make sure that you are taken care of when it comes to buying gear. Use the promo code PAINTEDARROW5 at the checkout and receive 5% off your entire purchase. Yes, that does include guns and bows, folks. Go down to Shoepex today. I'm particularly interested in, in these stories where, you know, whatever kind of animal is collared and, and you see these crazy travel um, routes that these animals take, you know, 1,200, 1,500 miles from, you know, whether they're relocated and they're going back home or you, you know, you see cougars or whatever come through the state of Michigan. I mean, if you think about it, however many years ago, like we had grizzly bears in Michigan, no problem. We had the habitat to support it. And then, you know, people started populating the areas and here we are, we're trying to re regrow all these species that once lived here. And I, I think so, it's, go ahead. Well, I was just, you just made me think if, if you have that interest, I think you would get a big kick out of this book. So this guy contacted me years ago when I was still doing cougars and he had heard about this mountain lion that, it was sighted in Wisconsin, and they got genetics off of it. They, I think it had blood in a paw print or something. And 
and then that was all there was to it. Michigan got the back half of a cougar on a trail camera submitted near the same time, probably ended up probably being the same animal. But then I don't remember how much longer it was ago after that, but there was a mountain lion that was road killed in Connecticut, which is weird that you would have one there. And Connecticut submitted some tissue sampling for genetic analysis. And there's really only one lab that does much cougar genetics. Um, it's out west, I want to say Montana. So it just so happened that that sample was analyzed at the same lab that did the blood sample from Wisconsin, and they verified that that, that was the same animal. Yeah. So this guy, Will Stalzenberg is his name, um, wrote a whole book called Heart of a Lion. He wrote, he went and did all this background research, tracked all the photos, all of the reports of how it could have done it, um, verified these locations, and then just wrote a whole book about just what you're talking about, this idea and this, well, this one, unless somehow somebody caught it and transported it to Connecticut and let it get road killed, it went from the Dakotas to Connecticut. Oh yeah, I I fully fully buy into that. Like, it, it we're we're creating more habitat as the years goes on. Whereas you know when, you know you could say trappers even we came and there was a market for hunting and we completely decimated all animal species and then we're basically trying to grow it back to those populations. So, like you said, I mean there's is very there's no debate whether there was grizzly bears and mountain lions at one point in time living in the state of Michigan, like very common, very believable. And you see these, like you said, they're typically males. They're look, probably looking to expand their range. They're looking for females to breed. And I don't know what you think, but I I could see in the next, I don't know how many years, because I'm not, I don't have the right number of, I just don't have any real data to go off, but I could fully see populations such as mountain lions who are like, they can travel very vast. They have big ranges. I could totally see them being like having a reproducing population in the state of Michigan within, I don't know how many years, but what, what, what do you think of that? I think, well, when you get, I think eventually, yeah, yeah, it'll probably happen. You have the, um, I think the obstacle right now is you have females and most, species tend not to disperse as far as males. So the males are the big dispersers that help diversify genetics mm -hmm. and males get to stay closer to home. Um, and then you have this big patch of not very typical or suitable habitat, the Great Plains, that creates this barrier. But you're seeing males coming over repeatedly. And I think it's probably only a matter of time before you get some females that make it. And once that occurs, I mean, there's definitely a prey base and habitat available. The big question is going to be, um, what's the tolerance level is going to be? Yep. So it's going to be the human challenge. And that's what the agencies are going to struggle with. And that's one of the reasons why people are skeptical of agencies and why they, um, don't just say, well, there's cougars that is that they think that we don't want, <laughs> yeah. we don't want to deal with the challenge of a population, but, um, once they're here, we'll, we'll deal, we'll deal with it and figure it out. But that, I mean, it's going to be probably as contentious as you can see with the wolf discussions, or even you see with 
sometimes with coyotes, people get can get passionate about them too, how many there should be and where they should be. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I look forward to that day. Like, I wish we had those animals all around. I really do. Um, yeah, that, that's just, like, for example, like in the last two years, I think the last two years straight, we've had bear all the way down yep. in Grand Rapids pretty easily. Yeah, I was going to say, you'll probably get a bear population down in your area first. Yeah. And, yeah, that, I mean, it's contentious. I mean, people get really, we had one not too far from me. Um, and I'm, I'm east of you a ways and more agriculture probably than, than you've got in that area. And boy, it hits everywhere, every social media platform, everywhere, everyone's up in arms and nervous and curious. And, um, it's, you know, the bear doesn't know what to do because everybody's coming yeah. to see it. people are convinced something bad will happen and we've done a lot of social research and into things like bears and what you find is the longer they're there like northern lower peninsula people are like okay we know how to take care of it or deal with it and we um we might be a little nervous about them but we're okay with it down yeah. here they never have to deal with it. They think of bears as somewhere else that that it's a fear of the unknown, but the risk potential, it's not zero, but it's pretty low. The likelihood of any of them doing anything is pretty small, but it's hard to convince people of that when it's a new thing and it's uh, 300 pounds as big teeth. Yeah. So I kind of talked about like my interest in, uh, in those, you know, unique animal stories and their large traveling expanding the range um another thing that like i think is a big reason why i got into trapping honestly like the fact that like the the fur boom and the 1820s to i don't know 1850s 1840s like when you when you could actually make more money going out and trapping beaver and coyote versus some of the best factory jobs that were available like you could you could make you could make an annual wage within a month of trapping coyote like that like there's something about that that is really it's like captivating to me that the fact that 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 was a better option like to go out with steel traps and work in the river like that was a better option than like working a 9 to 5 so like yeah. that that thought to me that like I, I just gravitated toward it and i wanted to learn the skill because like mm-hmm. I wanted to be ready for what if that happens in the future? Like we have a something happens and all of a sudden you you know you can make five hundred dollars on a single coyote pelt. I don't know. Yeah. That just that captivates me, and I think a lot of people don't um, realize that like this country, you could make a case for it that this country got on its feet in many ways due to beaver pelts. <laughs> you know what I mean? No, absolutely. Yep. Yeah, the I mean, the er, early settling and early activity in Michigan was focused on the fur trade. You look at Lewis and Clark when they were going out exploring the West. Their one of their primary things was looking at establishing a beaver trade empire, basically, and getting those routes established, getting the relationships set up with the native american communities exploring how many were actually there that was a specific 
objective and it was the fur market beaver in particular that was driving that so it's it's incredibly important to great lakes history and a large portion of western history the fur trade and fur market yeah just that whole time frame of yeah there was nothing there was nothing west of you know (laughs) what Missouri like people just didn't know there's like this big question mark that just that captivates me every time I think about it it captivates me um but well, Sault Ste. Marie was one of the earliest European settlements and it was set up as a fur trading post yeah it was in the 1600s they had one there because because of the importance of the Great Lakes as an avenue for people coming out of Canada and the western great lakes and a funnel point where native americans could come and be able to sell pelts and any of the french or other europeans that were out trapping could come in and sell and get them routed up it's it's pretty fascinating really but oh. yeah I think right. most people have no concept that that fur harvesting was that significant yeah and most of those are going overseas right and i've done quite a bit of looking around and even today like the reason that the, like a, a beaver pelt is just, I don't even know the prices nowadays. Do you have any idea? They're really low for all species right now. They're really depressed. I don't know um, what beaver are going for right now, but I know that all, all the prices right now are low. And so that's what I was going to allude to is that trapping prices, I, I, I don't know if they will ever be the same just because like we have commercial fur farms right now. Like we have, mink farms like somebody's role like job in life is to have a a farm and they have a bunch of minks and they sell the hides and that's a huge reason for why i mean i think the stat that i read was like over 80 percent of all fur doesn't come from the wild and trappers like sportsmen It, it doesn't come from that it comes from commercial farms and we're selling a majority of these over to you know i don't think it's china but it's well, China is a big fur buyer. It depends on what species, but China, Russia, and to some extent Europe. But yeah, China and Russia, I think, are the majority. Russia. The majority of our fur sales. China was really big on muskrat not too long ago and otter a while back, and they can really drive prices. But the international politics, like, China and Mongolia have an internal dispute and Mongolia wanted all the North American otters, but China wouldn't allow them to be shipped in. So the pelt prices went from in Michigan, you were getting 120, 150, 180 in the early 2000s to 20 bucks now. And some of that's due to that international politics. So it, yeah, it's really hard to, to, watch and monitor and control so you it's it's it is really interesting because you don't think about that that the international politics impact the behavior of a guy that traps in michigan right northern minnesota wisconsin whatever like yeah and pelt prices can usually have a significant impact on the level of trapping activity and the, the number of animals taken. So it really impacts even our ability to manage is, is dependent on those um, international politics. So I want to peer into this conversation. We don't have to go and dive real deep, but 
this conversation of, um, how do I want to put this? So here, let, let me give you an example, Adam. So I, I used to work in turkey processing, okay? Mm-hmm. I, I worked for the third largest turkey processing company in the entire world. And it just so happens that I was, I worked from all scopes from like the flock advisor going out into the field where, you know, these turkeys were on private owner farms and um, all the way from, I actually for a while was in the evisceration department, right? Okay. And uh, there's like, there's like, people don't like to know, there's this reality that people just, they're, it's better off on scene, right? Like they don't, they don't want to know where their food comes from. Like they just don't want to know. Right, right. And um, I have written down here, like, the the fact of how trapping works and how you you catch an animal and you put it out of its you know you, you take its life it's a it's a response it's a very heavy thing to do I'm not saying that it's not but you know animals don't die in the wild from old age can you affirm that I mean oh, very rarely I mean you get some a few lucky ones but for the most part you're absolutely right some something takes care of them right it's either I don't know, starvation, predation, um, injury, right. Illness. Yep. Something cars. So for, if you look at it through that lens, if you, if you can get somebody to understand that, like, you know, majority animals are not dying in in nature from natural causes. It's uh, when, when I was working at this Turkey processing, okay. It, 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 it's, I always struggled with the fact that people thought it was a better option that these turkeys are, we're living in, in these, in these small confined spaces, right? Mm-hmm. Their whole life, they're barely able to move. They're not free range. They get put on a truck. Then they go to this the facility. They get put on shackles hanging upside down where they're then going into an electric tray where water is going up. They're being electrocuted, which stuns them. And then their, their head is going through this rotating blade and it slits their throat and then they bleed out. That That's the process. Like, yeah straight up it's called the blood tunnel i used to work in the blood tunnel quite often and it was like people don't want to know that and like for example leather versus fur how many how many women probably have leather purses or leather shoes or leather this or leather that but they have this uh like fur just completely sets them off like i i I just don't like what what are your thoughts on that (laughs) it's it's a really interesting thing because I think people draw their own lines based on their perceptions and just their gut reaction to to things. So, so you, you can usually get crossover. So people that are opposed to harvest or use of animals of any kind and you who harvest things are going to say we're not comfortable with what you just described with turkey so there's these there's these commonalities but i i've had these conversations with people on both sides of the spectrum for a long time and it's hard for me to see where exactly those lines are so the leather versus fur um i've heard all sorts of things like well we wouldn't use leather either if we had a choice or um this animal um, was going to die for other purposes where where you're going to eat it and so you might as well use the fur whereas you're just trapping animals for their fur only so we don't like that idea 
Um, some of it is we know you used a trap to do it and we don't think that's humane. Um, I think actually I have had some conversations with people where it seems like you think, well, hunters often say, I don't know why you have a problem with eating. You don't have a problem with eating that turkey or that cow that was in captivity. But when this free range animal that got to have a good life, it's wrong for me to eat. And sometimes people say, well, because it was free and roaming free and it got to do all by itself. And then you, you got in the middle of it and messed it up. These other animals are domestic and they think about them a little bit differently. They, it's not to say that they support that treatment of the domestic animal, but for some reason, because it's already confined and it didn't get to experience a real life it's not as bad. It, it's just really interesting to try to piece it all together. And I've never, I've never, there is no, there is no way to, to parse that out and, and understand it completely. I don't think for some people it's just, well, you show me a picture of an animal that looks cute and has fur and it's in a trap and it can't, it has to be miserable. So I'm opposed to it and they're opposed to it in that way. And it doesn't go past that. They don't think about there's leather animal uses or they eat animals that were confined that it's just a visceral reaction to the picture that is, an, it just doesn't look they don't like the way it looks and they don't think about it beyond that. And, th and then you have the people that will go, they're like, yeah, I, I think about that and I'm a vegan. I won't touch anything that's taken from animals in any, in any way. And, and they've thought about all of that more in depth for whatever purpose. But I do think you get a lot of the, the individuals that this animal's caught in a trap and it's held there and they picture themselves in that scenario. And then they see the picture of the, um, cute animal, you know, it's usually, it's usually more of a strong well, reaction. I get it. I, I get it. Animals. For me, so, like it just really, it just really, like I try and approach this with as much respect as possible. And I want to represent the hunting and fishing and trapping industry as best I can. Like I'm not out here to make enemies, but it just really troubles me when, when, it's, it just seems like trappers get a lot of grief. Like I remember when I started trapping, like I just got asked so many questions like, well, why would you want to do that? And why are you doing this? And, and I'm like, I, I didn't realize it until I started to be honest with you. Oh yes. It's pretty intense. Yeah. And, um, and then I worked in this Turkey, you know, business for, you know, a couple of years and I don't know, it just fires me up how much hate because the, it seems like because the group of trappers in general is so small, especially along the lines of hound, hound hunters, uh, lion mm -hmm. hunters, like that's the very small communities, right? And it just seems like they have targets. It seems like they have targets on their back and it's hard for them to defend themselves. So I'm pretty passionate about it just from that sense of, I mean. It... Well, and you know, the agency looks at trying to um, evaluate regulations to make sure they're humane, but still be supportive of the activity. And in a lot of cases, it's the most effective way to manage some of these populations. But there's, there's that there's a constant struggle um, that we have with the stakeholder groups with let us make some meaningful restrictions that help reduce the negative reactions to what you're doing versus don't take away anything like that because eventually we're just going to lose it all because you keep giving in 
So you, you have what you have to find what what is it that you you do. So we we look at things like can you we made we made uh, restrictions to body gripping traps to make sure that traps of a specific size that are baited on the ground are set in a way that minimizes your chances of catching a dog or something that you didn't intend to catch. We Michigan used to have it was legal to use toothed traps and very, very few people ever still used them. There's a couple guys that probably had 60 year old tooth beaver traps. And, and we, we decided to ban tooth traps mostly because it wasn't going to impact 99% of trappers in their current practices, but it, sure. it, it's an avenue to attack that you could put a big poster of a giant tooth trap and say, Michigan allows these, even though five people are using them. Mm-hmm. So you look at some of those restrictions where can we adapt to kind of shore up our ability to talk about it. Michigan and the, the U S as a whole developed best management practices for traps as a, um, concession to the European Union who was going to ban all import of fur because that they are not foothold traps they um people that are opposed to foothold traps call them leg hold traps it sounds more um yeah damn and so they were going to eliminate any any pelts caught with a foothold trap would not be able to be sold in the European Union so we have this um, international agreement where we've done tons and tons of research on humaneness they're evaluated by all sorts of characteristics the amount of trauma to the animal the amount of damage or injury to the animal the ability to catch and hold the animal effectively and um look at those in terms of these are the types of things that we should try to encourage trappers to use. And if we didn't have those in place, we would lose a big chunk of the international market. So the trapping community and the the state agencies and federal agencies have done a lot to try to make sure trapping isn't the way people envision it. It never probably was, but I mean, it's much more humane and the, the techniques used now are uh, very effective and also do a good job at humanely catching and holding an- animals. Um, you can't get past the objections people have to just the idea of catching and holding an animal in, in the spot. But I mean, th- looking at some of the specific complaints they have, the majority of them just aren't true or they don't occur that way anymore. And that's probably some of the thing that you ran into. If you took some people out that gave you that kind of, why are you, I can't believe you would trap and they, they went with you and experienced it. They may come out with a very different perspective. They just don't, they don't really know what it is that they're opposed to. Yeah. I think it's, it's something to be said too. Like with, you mentioned teeth traps, like, or tooth traps, I guess is proper, but um, like the state of Michigan, like when we, when we, when we want to trap and collar a coyote to track, you know, what their movements are or whatever, like that's the same method they're using as well. Like, there's nothing different about what a what a person out trapping is just doing differently than what our government is is out there trapping. You know, these these traps are not made to damage the animal or hurt the animal. They're actually made so that the fur is not damaged. It's almost the opposite of what people think. Yep. Yep. 
Um, well, you can add a lot of features to them to try to make sure that you're not causing injury or damage. Yeah. You know what you should do, man? You should let me give a presentation and say something like, something like this. Say like, are you for something that's all natural, renewable as a resource? It's managed. It's non-toxic. It's biodegradable. Well, then you should become a fur trapper. Because <laughs> that's what it is. That's yeah. what that's what fur is. It is natural. It is completely a renewable resource. It's not toxic. It is biodegradable. And, like, people don't get that. Right. And, you know, biologists, one of the huge struggles that biologists and the average person has is that the average person, and especially when, in relationship to trapping, thinks about individual animals, whereas the biologist thinks about populations. So, you, you know, a biologist is going to say in this conversation, it's a renewable resource where we're managing the populations to sustain it, which is true. And it is, you are able to do that and you're able to keep them on the landscape where everybody can enjoy them and still harvest them and still utilize pelts. But most people think of that one animal in that trap right there. And then you, you get this disconnect with communication because that's the picture in their head. Biologists sees stats and numbers and sustainable population and somebody else is picturing that one animal in the trap or that one bear they saw on the back of a pickup on, on I-75 or, or whatever it is and trying to figure that out. Like, what is it? What is that message? All those things that you said are true. And it would fit with a lot of people's perspective about plastics or non-renewable resources yes. and everything. Yep. Make the switch, but what is it that keeps them from doing it? Why, why? What's the obstacle? And I think a lot of it is they think of that individual animal and they just – or society is just continually getting more and more disconnected from – People don't want to know where their turkey came from. People don't want to think about that. If you're from urban places, a lot of times your answer is that all of this stuff comes from the grocery store. And increasingly in rural areas, like, well, yeah, I know what a cow is. It's that, but I don't associate that with my steak. It's just this disconnect from, from all of those things where you just can't picture where your stuff is coming from and when you try to you're like oh i can't do that even if even if that's the way we should do things i just can't yeah so (laughs) So i don't know yeah it would be really interesting i I mean the reality like you were talking about pell prices the the reality about pell prices is going to be if people switch and becomes popular again or something about it is um more marketable, more palatable, bell prices will go up. Harvest will go up. But if if it continues on the trend that it is, where this idea of taking things for fur is going to be blocked, and you know sometimes there's active campaigns to make it illegal, that then you're going to just see pelt prices plummet. Can I tell you my my personal opinion on something? Yeah, and this is my personal opinion. This won't be very clear. So I don't. I do not think, as much as I desperately want it to, like I wasn't born in the fur era where you could make good money. I mean, nowadays you almost lose money. I mean, that's almost a proven fact is that you're not out there making money. So be very clear about that. But it is my personal opinion that I don't think in my lifetime fur prices will ever come up to that point. And secondly, 
I, I personally think, and I, I don't, I hate saying this, but I personally think just from what I've seen in the Western states, like for example, California, Colorado, like I, I don't know if trapping will be a thing in the state of Michigan within my lifetime. Like I, I could see that happening. Yeah. You watch those states and you wonder, you know, so there's, um, been efforts here to do some restrictions. Um, the, the most, a lot of work towards hounds in the mid nineties to try to outlaw hound, you know, use of hounds, but trapping to where there's these, um, checks kind of, how are people reacting? How are they responding? When you look at the wolf stuff, if you go back to 2012, 2013 and look back through articles and stuff, the, there was a strong opposition to the take of wolves at all, but the, a lot of people focused very strongly on no traps and um, you, you have those. Yeah. I mean, some of those states saw problems. So Massachusetts banned most forms of trapping. I was in grad school in Massachusetts when they basically shut down trapping except for they usually leave nuisance trapping some leeway and trapping for research um and they run into problems so massachusetts a lot of they only had like 400 licensed fur harvesters trappers anymore in that, that state and they stopped a little early and they start running into nuisance problems because they don't have people removing them or people that are even why keep your stuff and so you you do see some of that rebound, but um, yeah, I think you you you'll probably see more states that go that way. So far, Michigan's pretty been pretty effective, and the public has been fairly supportive of scientific wildlife management. But you never know how how things will hit on the ballot. I mean, we had dove hunting for a year, and that I mean that's you look at that argument. And it's pretty amazing how effective people were at convincing everyone that. Well, yeah, you, you know, every almost like 40 states have dove season. All the Michigan doves are going to go through states when they migrate that are going to be hunted. You, you have all these species in Michigan, like deer that people that don't hunt deer usually are complaining about. And yet, the idea that shooting some doves in Michigan would result in population problems or not seeing them at your feet, or it doesn't even make sense when you look at how other species exist here. But, but Michigan residents seem to overwhelmingly decide that they don't think that people should shoot doves. And so, you know, you wonder if, if the argument gets couched in a way that works, then yeah, I think some of these things could end up going away. And I think that's often why you see attacks on hound hunting, um, attacks on expansion of opportunities that don't currently exist, potentially trapping, because um, they're things that are on the, the most people, if you're gonna, you might, you might hunt, but you might say, I don't like the idea of trapping, or I hunt and I don't, like the idea of dove hunting. I can remember that when we did the dove season stuff, there was, there was plenty of hunters that were coming out and saying those kinds of things. And I think, so you, you can chip away at things when you pick at those kind of targets and trapping 
fits in that category, I think. Yeah. That that's which is, why, which is why Michigan tends to be we want to preserve the tradition and preserve the tool and the recreational opportunity because we know that we can do it scientifically and safely for populations. And so we tend to make small but meaningful changes to try to preserve it for as long as we can and offer opportunities as expansive as we can without without providing a trigger point for some of those big discussions yeah no i i I could not agree more like go with the science i mean it makes so much more sense it's for example in colorado where they just had this ballot with the the whole reintroduction of wolves like i'm not like i i was personally against that like i don't think that that should have been something that goes to the ballot box you know what i mean like why why are we not just following the science and that, that's not to say that I don't like wolves. I mean, I want to see wolves running all around. Like that, that's not the case at all. But we, when we when we take advice from people who are just not following what what the data shows and what the science says and what the biologists are saying, like I, I don't get it. I don't understand at all, and it's hard for me to understand. But I'm, I I try to uh, you know you can't go forward without these people, right? Like the people aren't going away, so you got to find a way to to do that with them. So I'm interested interested to see how this all plays out um, in the future with Michigan. Cause I love this state, man. I, I really do. I think it's, I think it's amazing. Um, I think we got a lot of cool animals that people don't realize a lot of the times, but I, th- I think it's a great and awesome place. I, I agree with you. And I think you're right too, that it's, it's, it'd be great to try to find some of these common grounds, even with people that are t- so far apart, the appreciation for all the cool things we have, um, should be uh, something that pulls people together and trying to get them to understand that even though you might oppose harvest, you can still get to see all these cool things. And trappers like to see all those cool things too. They just have a different way of experiencing it and trying to get people to think that way more. I think that's something the agency is trying to struggle with and figure out ways to do it. But you're right. You can't, it's not about, not listening to everybody it's about how do you how do you find balance when you have views that seem completely opposite but they both but they all stem from a common shared love or interest in the resource 100 percent, man. i could not agree more um adam is there anything that i didn't ask you or didn't bring up that i should have um i think we covered a lot i think we had a good conversation about about the nature of my my program for bear management in michigan so i think i'm good awesome um i do want to close off if you want to have like a, a concluding thought you're more than welcome on what i'm saying mine here um if not no big deal i do want to say though like when we were talking earlier about you know mentoring a trapper or even if it's something that you've never done, you don't have a mentor and you want to get into it. Like I highly encourage that, but I also highly encourage find highly encourage finding somebody who can mentor you. Cause I know it can be very, there can be a lot of obstacles, you know, barriers to entry. So I think that that's going to be the key going forward is having people that are like-minded and um, who are young and coming into the industry and the sport and getting into it. There's so much about trapping it. I mean, just trapping the animals at the beginning and then there's the the you know you gotta take the, the cape off and you gotta clean the deer up clean this one up whatever there's a lot that goes into it after the fact about preserving furs and 
um, selling it, and it can be a business. It's it's a good learning point. So I just want to encourage people to get into it if you're curious about it and uh, find somebody to help you along the way. So I think that's a great suggestion. I'd take a look at Michigan Trappers and Predator Collars Association has information on their website, and they do those conventions and um, trainings sometimes. Michigan has a voluntary trapper education program. It's um, administered through our law enforcement division, like our Hunter Ed program is. But you can go on, and um, a good portion of it's online. And then we do have some in-person courses that are offered. So if people are interested, it's even if you just want to explore it online and take a look, um, I think that's a good opportunity. Getting connected to the um, Michigan Trappers Association or their conventions would be a good way to find a mentor if you if you don't know somebody already but i think also some of it can just be learning like the way you did you know going out and practice go out and just track some animals and look at where things might be even if you don't want to trap trying to if you if you don't want to trap but you want to learn more about fur bearers trying to go out and look at how you might be able to catch them on the trail camera or with a trap um, it's going to help you learn a lot about animals. You got to know animals pretty well and their behavior pretty well to be able to trap them. So if you kind of go out with that mindset, I think you you might be surprised the kind of things that you learn are in your backyard or um, down at the local park or in your back forty. And just just starting to take an interest in it in that way, I think you might you might decide that you want to get into it a little more. Absolutely, I, I could write you. A- a freaking essay on how if you become a, a trapper and you can figure out how to get a coyote to step on a four inch pan, I mean, you're going to be a better, you know, when you shoot a deer and you're trying to track blood, you are going to become better. It just, it's a natural, you know, it, it's just going to happen. It's going to happen. So that's awesome. Adam, I'm really excited uh, that we had this conversation and um, what's the, what's the guy heart of the lion who, who's the author of that? It's uh, William Stalzenberg. William Stalzenberg. I'm gonna write that down, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna give that a read. You think that guy's still alive? Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's still around. The book isn't that old. I mean, he, he, he has a natural resources background, and this, this, um, cougar did that trip. Oh, it's, it has to be in the mid 2000s, so it wasn't that long ago. Um, yeah. So I talked to him briefly on the phone and I got a copy of the book just because, you know, it touched something that I was working on. So I thought it'd be cool to have one. It's a, it's a good read, I think. Yeah. I think I found it here. It's on Amazon, I believe. Awesome, man. Well, Hey, um, I really appreciate it, Adam. Uh, if, if you ever want to, uh, get together and do some trapping, man, I would be completely down for that. I think that sounds like an awesome time. Everybody, thank you for listening along. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you learned something. And until next time, we will see you later.